Let's go from powerless prayer to providing for Christ. It says, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. And I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my corpse? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feast. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from my sight, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. You know, I've gotten the, the P's down here trying to organize the thoughts of where we're going. We've gone through praise, privilege, prophets, prophecy, promise, pressures of life, the remnant, punishment. Last week, we looked at the pictures of Jesus Christ in the temple. Two more today, if we can get to them. Powerless prayer and providing for Christ. I want to be honest with you, though, as I was looking over this this week, I felt like... Uh, what I've been doing is I've been taking like a truck, putting everything in the back of that truck and transporting the things of God and trying to bring them to you. But as I look back, I forgot I left the tailgate open. And as I was traveling from one place to another, things have been falling out. And as I look back, I see I've left things behind. I don't know if we've really gotten a hold of everything that God is saying here. And so without being cute, one of the first things I want to do here is I want to put you to work. Uh, it's going to take some work to do what I do this morning, okay? So I'm going to keep my head down, and I want to go through this verse by verse, and at the risk of being boring or whatever, it's going to take some attention. It's going to take some work on your part, okay? Because I'm going to keep my head down, we're going to go through this to make sure we haven't missed anything, because I don't know if we've really explained so far exactly what he's saying here. So, starting with verse 10, let me review. Where are we at? We're looking at the period of four kings. Started off great, but when the next king comes along after Uzziah, things start to deteriorate. Assyria becomes a problem. By the time we get to Ahaz, Assyria comes down, and during the king of Ahaz, what happens? The northern ten tribes, the kingdom is now divided. The northern ten tribes are taken away. They are judged because of their gross sin. God tried to get them to change. They wouldn't. Judah now is the issue. They're left. Isaiah is working with Judah. He is trying to get them to change direction, but they continue in their vain worship, which we looked at last week, and we're going to get into their idolatry next week. He's talking to them as a husband would talk to a wife when he talks to Jerusalem. He is now pleading with her, and that's where we're at in this stage right now. He's pleading with her. He's going to judge her, but he still loves her. Babylon is coming. We're going to see that real soon. But even worse than that, hell is coming. And we're going to get to that at the end of chapter 1. It says, thus they did burn together, and there will, be no, there will be none to quench them. That is talking about eternal fire. 
So it's coming, and he's trying to keep them from getting there. He's trying to avoid Babylon. He's trying to avoid hell. They're not listening, okay? Now there's a debate going on. We're in the middle of a debate. He says, come, let us reason together. In verse 18, that is a word to uh, uh, argue or to debate. Look at verse 12. They are defending themselves, and they're saying, but we're doing everything you required. Where do we get that? We get it from verse 12 when it says, when you come to be before me, who requires of you this? They're saying we're doing the requirements. He says, this is not what I required you to do. So what's going on here? He's answering their defense of everything that he said so far. How can you say all those horrible things that you said about us? You said we hate you, we despise you, you called us Sodom and Gomorrah, you called us dumber than donkeys. How can you say that when we're doing everything that you told us to do? And he's saying, this is not what I required you to do. So we're in the middle of an argument. Now it says in verse 10, let's back up to verse 10, and here we go. Let's look at this carefully this time. Let's go through it slowly, carefully, and see exactly what he's saying. It says, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. The Jewish translation says it this way. Hear what Adonai says, you rulers of Sodom, listen to God's, the word is Torah. Listen to God's Torah. The Torah is the law of God revealed to Moses as recorded in Hebrew scriptures. Now the law of Moses was the ritual, it's divided into two parts. There's the ritual and then there's the moral rules given by God to govern all aspects of his life, especially when it came to his relationship to God and his relationship to men. And we see that here because he divides it into two parts here. You can see he's after them about the way they're treating him, and he's after them about how they're treating other people. Now, what they're doing is they're obeying the ritual laws. And so when he says, I'm angry with you, and he goes through all these things, he says, this, what you're doing is a waste of time. He is not saying that he is angry at the ritual law. That is not, he says, I'm not mad at the law that I gave you. What is he mad at? He says, I'm mad at the way you're treating it. You're putting all the emphasis on the ritual law, and then you're ignoring the rest of the law. You're ignoring the rest of the Torah that I gave you. And I'm also angry, not with the law, but with the way you are emphasizing the ritual above the purpose of the ritual, okay? So that's what he's mad about. Verses 19 and 20, he gives the Mosaic Covenant, as recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 28. God is simply telling them to obey the rest of the Mosaic Law. When you look at verses 19 and 20, he says, if you consent and obey and you'll eat the best of the land, but if you refuse and rebel, you know what that is? That's the Mosaic Covenant. He's simply giving them again the Mosaic Covenant. Verse 17, what we're going to look at if we get to it today, when it says, learn to do good, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow, that is also in the Mosaic Law. So he's quoting the Mosaic Law, and he's telling them, see, these are just examples of where you're not doing what I told you to do, okay? Now, verse 10, back up again, and there's another thing here. You see where it says, hear the word of the Lord Give ear to the instruction of our God. Stop a second. You've heard that before. I don't understand why the translator uses different words. 
But when you look it up, it is the exact same words of verse 2. Look at verse 2. Listen, O heavens, for the Lord speaks. And hear, O earth. I'm sorry. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth. You see those words, listen and hear? They're the exact same words as hear and give ear in verse 10. He's saying the exact same thing. He's calling an audience, trying to get their attention. But this time, the audience is not the heavens and the earth. This time, who is the audience? It's the rulers and the people. And what does he want them to hear? This time, he wants them to hear the word of the Torah. Verse 11. Look at three things that he says. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me? Second, I have had enough. Third, I take no pleasure. If we were going to say that today, he would say in this way. He's saying three different things. Your sacrifices mean nothing. They add nothing. And they do nothing. When he says that the pleasure, he has no pleasure in the blood, the blood was the core of the whole system. God is saying it accomplishes nothing here. It means nothing. It adds nothing. It accomplishes nothing. It was supposed to provide propitiation. Now, there's a word. What does the word propitiation mean? Romans 3.25 says, Jesus Christ, whom God displayed publicly, propitiation in his blood. Now, what does that mean, propitiation? It approved or it satisfied God's righteous demands. It actually, propitiation is the same word in the Hebrew. If they, if they translate it into the Greek, it's the word they use for the mercy seat. Jesus' blood was the propitiation if a person believed in it. Okay? But he's saying that they, in what they were doing, did not find propitiation. God was not satisfied. They were offering a lot of blood. They were shedding a ton of blood, literally tons of blood. And it was not doing what it was supposed to do. Okay? So, means nothing, adds nothing, does nothing. So, now go to verse 12. Oh, wait a minute. I, I skipped a part. Verse 11, when it says the fat of fed cattle, what does it refer about the fat of fed, fed cattle? It refers to cattle reared just for sacrifice. Now, if, in the, if you went through and read Leviticus and you saw what they were given uh, instructions to offer, what was the most expensive thing they could offer? This, a fattened cattle. They were also, if you were poor, you could have offered up if you couldn't afford it. But the point is here is you can see what they're doing. They were defending themselves by saying, look, when I come, I give you the most expensive. You should be happy with that. He says, I don't care how expensive your gift is. It is worthless to me. Sacrifices, where it means to, spl uh, to slay, especially for sacrifice. It means to sacrifice, shed blood, and the reason he does this, if you look at how he organizes here, he's actually dividing the sacrifices. Remember last week I said there was five sacrifices? He divides them up in this verse. When he says sacrifices made with blood, it is different from the burnt offering and the meal offering. Three blood sacrifices were not completely consumed. Then there was one meal offering. Only one was completely consumed. Do you remember which one it was? It is the burnt offering, and he talks about that. He says... And I've had enough of the burnt offerings. He's putting it in a separate, a separate category because it was completely consumed. 
What part of the offering was not sacrificed? He says it here. And the fat of fat fed cattle. Why does he say that? Because that is the part of the animal that was not consumed. It says, uh, Leviticus 3, verses 4 and 5, and the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them, that was kept separate, that was not consumed. So that's what he's talking about in verse 11. He says, I've had enough of your burnt offerings, I've had it, and the fat of fed cattle, the part that you're separated and given, and I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. Okay. Notice he also uses the word multiplied. What are your multiplied sacrifices? There was no shortage of sacrifices. They killed a lot of animals. On the day that Solomon dedicated in 1 Kings, when he dedicated the, the uh the temple, how many animals did he kill at one time? 142,000 animals at one time, okay? Now, I tried to look it up over and over again last night. I could not find it. One man says he estimates in one day they could kill 1.2 million. Now, I don't know if it's that high, but he says it's more than you realize because there's people coming from hundreds of miles. They had to go to Jerusalem. They had to go to temple. And all the Jews of all the area were coming, and that was where they sacrificed. And so they were lined up, and they were mowing them down. They were killing many, many, many animals. Verse 12 takes off that multiply sacrifices. You see, and the trampling of my courts, when you come before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? That takes off the idea that you've got thousands and thousands of people and animals coming through, and they're walking into the courts, and they think they're doing what God wants them to do. But what is it? It's just a lot of noise. It's like uh, you see those old westerns when they have a stampede of cattle going through, you know, all that noise. He said, that's what it is. It's just a lot of noise, a lot of hooves and feet going through my courts. I just hear noise, but nothing is going on. Verse 12, this is interesting to me. What was the purpose of going to the temple? He says it right off the bat in verse 12. What was the reason for going to the temple? When you come to what? Appear before me. This wasn't a ritual. This was a personal thing. Why are you coming? To kill an animal? No, you're coming to see me. It says it very clearly. Let me read to you. Exodus 23 says, three times a year you shall celebrate a feast. Okay? It says, three times a year, and he goes through them, the three, the three celebrations that all males are required to go through every year. Three times all your males shall appear before the Lord God. Exodus 34, it repeats it. When you had to uh, redeem a firstborn, if you had an animal, you always redeemed the firstborn, or if you had a son, your firstborn son had to be redeemed. You had to offer a sacrifice. It says, when you do that, none shall appear before me empty-handed. What was the purpose of sacrificing? It wasn't to kill the animal and say, yeah, God, I did what you told me to do. No, it was to appear before him. Now, the point of this verse is they weren't coming to see him. They did not want to see God. They were just making noise. The temple in Jerusalem was known to be the dwelling place of the 
what was the great big light that had taken them out of Egypt? And Ezekiel tells us that when he's done with Israel, it goes back into heaven. There was a manifestation of God, and it was called the Shekinah. The Shekinah could be seen everywhere, and where did the Shekinah dwell? It dwelt between the cherubim above the mercy seat. The light, the brilliant light that manifested the presence of God was called the Shekinah. The word for Shekinah comes from a word which means to dwell. Okay, when you come before me to see the Shekinah, but listen, he says, who requires this of, you know what the emphasis, what is the key word in that phrase right there? When you come before me, who requires of you? In the Hebrew, the word that is emphasized is the word you there. Who requires this of you? You're not the one I required this of. That's the, what he's saying here. You're not a believer. There is no requirements, you believer, to come and do this. This is for my people who have come to love me, to come to see me. I never required this of you. Verse 13, bring your worthless offerings no longer. He did not want any more presents. They were gifts of Shah, S-H-A-U. They were Shah gifts. They were, the word means hollow or false. They were worthless to him. Now, we've talked about the sacrifices, so what is he talking about here? Some people call this a meat offering. I have no idea. I, I don't know why they call it meat offering. It's, it's a grain offering. It was described in Leviticus 2 the first time, and it was made of flour or fruits, and they mixed it with frankincense, and a small part was going in, offered on the altar, and the rest was given to Aaron's sons and the priests. They're bringing it to him, and he's saying, it's nothing. That's not what I want. Amos 4 or 5. Amos 4, verses 4 and 5, says that they were giving this gift the way they wanted. It was what they wanted and not what God wanted. They would bring it in with leaven. Okay, that's important. Because when he says you bring a grain offering, you bring it what? Unleavened. What was leavened a sign of? Sin. They were bringing it with leavened offerings. This is a way of saying, I don't want to go to a church unless it tells me what I want to do. Let me go live the way I want to live, and then I'll go to church and I'll say a few whatever, do a few things. I'll feel good about myself. They'll say, your sins are forgiven, and I can go back and keep on living the way I want to live. That is what these people were doing, according to Amos. Verse 13, it says, not only are your offerings no longer of any value to me, he says, your incense is abomination to me. Last week, I got into this a little bit. Incense was connected to two things, prophecy and prayer, if you look at Revelation chapter 5. It was also a perfume designed to be used just between his girl and him. It was an intimate thing. You used it for anything else, God is a jealous God. I read a book, and I wish, I really wish I could give it to you, because there was a man who taught me something, and don't hold me to this, I think his name was Tony Gugliano, something like that, and he wrote fictional Christian books. 
And he wrote a book one time that I read, and this was back in the 1970s. And again, I was into figuring out what Satan worship was because we had a Satan worshiper in our, in our unit. And I do not recommend that you do that. I not, do not get into that. You don't need to do, go there. But I was reading a book, and he was teaching through this fictional book the importance of the prayer of a Christian. And he painted in this book, he says, that this Christian learned that beside him stood the armies of God and the angels, powerful angels, ready to do battle with the demons who were fighting against the church and God's people and doing things. And they were very equipped to handle the demonic angels, but the one thing was holding them back. And you know what was holding them back? They could not do anything unless a Christian prayed. And this Christian learned that lesson, and he says, I started praying. And when I started praying, God was able to command those angels to go and fight the demons. I see the same thing here. You don't realize how important your prayers are. We handicap God. You say, well, God's not doing anything. It's not that God doesn't want to do anything. You realize that he's given his word that he will do it? It takes something to unleash the power of God's word. What holds it back? It's our prayers, okay? Your prayers are a waste of time. Here, the Isaiah 1 Jews, you're wasting your time with your prayers and your incense. The prophecies are there, and he gives some of the prophecies. I could do this for you. I promise I do this for you. And you come in, you pray, and you offer your incense, and pff, waste of time, not doing anything. Verse 13, it says, new moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. Okay, stop a second. I don't know what translation you're reading, but KJV and a lot of translation has that in the plural, okay? Uh, this is one reason, New American Standard, one of the reasons I like it is there's a lot of sections in here that get it right. It's not plural, it's singular, okay? He's talking about the new moon, the Sabbath, and the calling of assemblies, okay? Uh, Psalm 81 says, sing for joy to God our strength. Shout joyfully to the God of Jacob. Raise a song. Strike the timbrel, the sweet sounding lyre with a harp. Blow the trumpet of the new moon at the full moon on our feast day. For it is a statute for Israel, an ordinance of the God of Jacob. This was a time to shout and celebrate God. That's not what they're doing. He says, I hate your new moon festival. New moon, we got into this a little bit last week too. He says, every time, it, every time the new moon would appear, two bullocks, a ram, and seven sheep were offered with a meal offering in addition to the regular sacrifices. The appearance of the new moon was announced by the blowing of silver trumpets. The new moon started the month of, and I looked it up, it can be September, October. This year it was September 19th. That was the start of the new Jewish year. Their Jewish calendar is different than ours. We have 365, and then every four years we have a, a year we have to adjust. They ran off the moon, okay? They only had 360 days in their calendar. And so they run, so the new moon in September, October started their new year. And they cel we celebrate our new year. They celebrated it too. They were also commanded uh, as a festival. The festival sometimes was called that started this new moon, the festival that started it was called the blowing of the trumpets or the memorial of the blowing of the trumpets. So Numbers 10 says that the blowing of the trumpets started the, the new moon. There were two horns. One was metal, one was what? 
One was a ram's horn, okay? Only a priest could blow that. If one was blown, leaders came. If two came, all males came, okay? The second thing during this festival, this time of the new moon, was the Day of Atonement on day 10. It was the holiest day of the year. That's when Jews asked for forgiveness. It was called the Sabbath of Sabbaths. Day 15, when the moon was fullest, they celebrated God, and they celebrated the care that God gave them in the wilderness. Now, you see it says the new moon and the Sabbaths. Sabbath means to rest from work. It means properly a day of rest. And it was properly applied here only to the, not only to the seventh day, which is the week calendar, but particularly to the beginning and the end of the great festivals. So it's talking about, when he says in verse 3, the new moon and the Sabbath, he's talking about the celebration they had on the first and last day, and then the calling of assemblies. The calling of assemblies means they had church. All during these weeks of celebration, they had assemblies and they would celebrate. They would have church. He says, I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. They'd go to church and then go out and sin any way they wanted. They were doing both. It says the solemn assembly, that word solemn means to shut up or close. So they would assemble on the last day of the feast, and then they would have a Sabbath meeting, and then they would close the festival. He says, I hate. When he says, I hate, the word means I hate with all my heart. This refers to the feast that the law commanded, but he was tired of it, and he hated what they were doing. And even an all-powerful God was getting tired of carrying their sin when they came. But I want you to notice something. What does he hate? Look at the difference in how he hates in the way the people hate. Go back to verse 4. And he says, sons who act corruptly, they have abandoned what? The Lord. They have despised him, the Holy One. They hate him, but what does he hate? He doesn't hate them. He hates what? What they're doing. Okay? You see the difference? When they hate, they hate it. It's personal. When he hates, he hates what they're doing. Guys, he doesn't hate them. He still loves them. Okay? Now, verse 15, another P. Let's get to powerless prayer. Look at verse 15. He says, so when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yea, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Why won't he listen? Because their hands were covered with blood. He says, I will hide my eyes from you. You see that? What does he mean? In Numbers 6.25, it says, The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. So if the Lord's face shone upon you, it means he would bless you. He's doing the opposite here. He's shutting his eyes. Instead of showing his face to him, he says, I won't even look at you. So what are you saying? He says, there is no grace. I'm not going to be gracious to you here. I'm going to do just the opposite. So that's another way of him saying, I'm not going to answer your prayers. It says, when you spread your hands out in prayer, is that how you, is he teaching us that that's how you're supposed to pray? There's something going on. And there's something that is a mystery to me here. Why are they praying to him? Who are they talking to? It says in verse 4, they abandon him. They don't want anything to do with him. Then why are they praying to him? They despised him. 
Why would you pray to somebody when you feel this way about them? There's something going on here, and you can't see it unless you go back, turn to 1 Kings chapter 8, and we need to spend some time here to figure out what's going on. When I first looked at this, I could not figure out what did prayer have to do with going to the temple. It doesn't make any sense to me. Do you realize that uh, Jesus, in Luke 19, verses 45 and 46, it says that Jesus entered the temple and he began to drive out those who were selling, saying to them, it is written, and my house shall be a house of prayer. But you have made it a robber's den. You know what he was doing? He says, it is written. Where is it written? Jesus was quoting. What was he quoting? He was quoting Isaiah. Isaiah 56, 7, Isaiah is describing the temple during the millennial reign. The new temple in the millennial reign is going to be, according to Jesus, a place of prayer. Is this a place of prayer where they're at right now? It was supposed to be. 1 Kings chapter 8, Solomon's temple. Solomon is dedicating the temple. Listen to what he says. Read with me for a little bit so you can see what does he say. Now, when Solomon dedicates the temple, he doesn't say, oh, Lord, bless this place, the place where we're going to kill a million animals. That's not what he says. He doesn't focus on the sacrifices. He doesn't focus on the Day of Atonement. What does he focus on? Look what he focuses on. This is what the temple is going to be all about. Start with verse 22. Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel, and look what he does. He spread out his hands towards heaven. You see where Isaiah is coming from now? He said, O Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or above or on earth below, keeping your covenant and showing loving kindness to your servants who walk before you with all your heart. Now, I want you to skip, and I want you to go down to verse 29. And what he's going to do here is he's going to list seven specific prayers. Seven specific prayers that they were supposed to pray when they came to the temple. Now, time out here for a second. What is going on with the Isaiah 1 Jew right now? Remember, Isaiah just gives the short list. He only gives two examples, but if we go to Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, you see what's really going on here. You remember what that list was? We read some of it, okay? What do they got going on? They've got suffering, terror, consumption, fever, famine, defeat from enemies. There was no rain. There were animals eating their children and their cattle. There was pestilence. They were actually eating their own children because they were so hungry because of their siege, and they're saw Assyria, and they would be the same way a little bit after this, where they were scattered among the nations. That's what the Isaiah 1 Jew is going through, okay? Now, all those things that God is doing to discipline and punish his people for their sin, all those things that Leviticus and Deuteronomy tells they're going through, look at what the specific prayers that he gives in 1 Kings chapter 8 that a Jew was supposed to pray. Look at verse, start with verse 29. That you're, he wants, and he says, listen, in verse 28, back up a little bit, to listen to the cry and to the prayer which your servants praise before you today. Why? That your eyes may be open towards this house night and day, towards the place of which you have said, my name shall be there, to listen to the prayer which your servants shall pray toward this place. Listen to the supplication of your servant 
and of your people Israel, when they pray toward this place, here in heaven your dwelling place, hear and forgive. Then he starts listening. What was their purpose? They were supposed to lift their hands and pray towards the temple. And what were they looking for? They were looking for forgiveness. Forgiveness from what? Look at what he says. First one, if a man sins against his neighbor and it made to take an oath and he comes and takes an oath before your altar in this house, then hear in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning the wicked by bringing his way on his own head and justifying the righteous by giving him according to... Now listen, don't forget this. By giving him what? According to his righteousness. Answer his prayers, but only answer his prayers what? If he's obeying, okay, and if he's doing what he's supposed to do, then he gets an answer. But listen, people are fighting. Now, at first I says, where does this fit in? It does fit in really well because you know what's going on here? Very soon, Manasseh is going to come along and he says he fills the streets with blood. You know what they're doing? And then we're going to see their hands are filled with blood. You know what blood means? People were dying. They were murdering each other. It says that the place was full of murderers. Man against man. They're murdering. They're suffering in conflict with each other. They need to be forgiven. Verse two, uh, the next one he says in verses 33, 34, when, you people, when your people are defeated before an enemy because they have sinned against you, if they turn to you again and confess your name, that is very key. If they turn to you again and confess your name and pray and make supplication to you in this house, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land which you gave to their fathers. They're praying, but what are they doing? Are they asking for forgiveness, the Isaiah 1 Jew? They're doing the things. All these prayers were designed specifically for them. All these prayers are exactly what they're experiencing. They need to be praying these specific prayers, but they're leaving pieces out. Let me go through the rest real quick. The third one in verses 35, 36, he says, when the heavens are shut up and there is no rain, then pray. The fourth one, if there is famine, if there is pestilence, if there is a blight or mildew, locust or grasshopper, if the enemy besieges them in a land of their cities, whatever plague, whatever sickness, each knowing the affliction of his own heart, listen to this, and spreading his hands towards this house, then hear and forgive and render to each according to his own ways, whose heart you know, for you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men, that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land you have given to our fathers. The fifth one, not only was a Jew allowed to do this, but it says that the foreigner who feared God, could also pray. I'm not a Jew, but if I was a Gentile and I feared God, I could do the same thing. Mercy was offered also to the Gentiles, what? If he would pray towards the temple. The sixth thing, when your people go out to battle and you need God's help, pray to the temple. Last one, when they sin against you so that they had take them away captive to the land of an enemy, far off or near, that is exactly what is happening to these people. They watched Assyria take them off. Northern tribes are gone, scattered throughout all the Assyrian conquered territory. They could have prayed that prayer. But they are getting what? No answer. 
God had given them the temple to come and pray and solve the very problem that they are going through right now. They had the temple. They had a God who lived there who would answer their prayers, and they're coming. It, notice it says, your multiplied prayers, even if you pray a lot, and they were, even though you multiply prayers. Pray, 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 pray. No answer. I don't care how many times you pray. I don't care if you pray according to 1 Kings 8, like I gave you. I'm not going to answer your prayers. Why? He said why in 1 Kings 8. I read it several times. Answer them according to their hearts. You know their hearts. What's their heart? Are they asking for forgiveness? Are they going to choose and to do what's right? Then I will pray. They left that part out. But now they're going to go. They're going to raise their hands towards the temple. Pray, 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 pray. Come on, come on. You said, you said. Pray. Nope. You left out. Ask for forgiveness. Repent. I know your heart. Your heart is not right with me. I will not answer your prayers. Guys, it works the same way with us today. He who turns away his ear from listening to the law, even his prayer is an abomination. Where a God isn't important to you, you don't care what the Bible says. I'm not listening to you. That's Proverbs chapter 28. Psalm 68 says, If I regard wickedness in my heart, in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Christian husband, I picked on you a little bit last week. There's another verse. Do you know what hinders your prayers? Christian husband, is your relationship with your wife right? If you're not right with your wife, uh, God has a real hard time listening to you. Before you pray to me, I want you to go talk to her. Okay? We live by the same principles today. Get rid of the sin in your heart. I'm out of time, but let me just say this real quick. He says, the reason I will not answer their prayers, it says their hands were, New American Santa says covered. It means to be full. Their hands were full of blood. What is he talking about to be their hands full of something? That is a, a Hebrew way of saying to be totally consecrated to something. If your hands were full, or it means to fill your hands, it means that you are totally 100% consecrated to God. Uh, they're coming, their hands are full, but not with God, but with somebody else's blood. The word means blood guiltiness, and that's how it's translated in other places. That means that they were committed sins where blood was shed. Explain that to me. <laughs> you're going and you're killing people, and then you're coming to God, and your hands are filled with blood, and God's looking at that, and he's going, oh no, oh no. I'm not listening to prayers when your hands are filled with blood. When you're around and you're disobeying the law, you're disobeying my God on how to treat other people. And if you're doing that, you got no business coming to me, okay? So what goes along with prayer is getting your heart right with the one that you're talking to.